Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on March 28, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with the national chair of the Alliance Party, Mr. Jim Rex. Jim co-founded and chaired the American Party of South Carolina, and he was the last Democrat to win a statewide election in South Carolina when elected as the 16th state superintendent of education in 2006. Prior to becoming superintendent, Jim held a variety of leadership positions, including the dean of education at Winthrop University and at Coastal Carolina University, vice president for university advancement at the University of South Carolina, and president of Columbia College in South Carolina. He began his career as a high school English teacher and football coach. He earned a Ph.D. in curriculum and instruction from the University of Toledo. In mid-2019, Jim was promoted from vice chair to the national chair of the Alliance Party. Jim, welcome back to the Alliance Party After Dark. It's a pleasure to have you with us again this evening. Well, thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, I think uh, last time you were on this podcast, uh, we were doing, I believe it was the Thanksgiving Gratitude episode, which was released on December 1st, and you were talking with M. Lloyd Johnson and discussing the uh, the state of the country that as we as we were coming up at, uh, toward the close of the year. And uh, I was just thinking to myself, you know, what a difference a few months can make, though, huh? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Thanksgiving seems like... Um, a holiday a decade a decade ago, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know, now we're dealing with a global pandemic. The the term social distancing has entered into the lexicon and politicians are having to decide, you know, what's more important, human lives or businesses and and we just uh signed a uh signed into uh two another two trillion dollars into our national debt, two two trillion plus dollars. Well this I think it is becoming clear every day, clearer every day that this is going to be a transformational period in all of our lives uh, and probably in the life of our nation and probably in the life of the, the planet uh, because it's impacting every country and every population. Yeah. So um, this, is, this is going to be something that uh, will be in the history books and talked about and um, analyzed mm-hmm. uh, really for probably time. for a century, yeah. a century or more. Yeah. Well, what um, speaking of that, you know, what what should responsible politicians be doing during this crisis period? Responsible as opposed to irresponsible, right, Dan? Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, well, first of all, they need to be telling the truth. They need to be speaking factually. Um, people need to know facts, um, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. They deserve, especially under these conditions. And the stakes that we're all confronting, they need to know what is happening. Um, they also don't need to be scapegoating. They don't. This is not a time to not encourage unity. This is not a time to be blaming any particular group or country or region. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't call out people who are engaged in destructive or negative behavior. We should. And mm-hmm. politicians should be a part of that, but they also should be praising constructive behavior, which, of course, we're all encouraging one another to do in this country uh, in terms of controlling this pandemic. And it'd be nice also if our responsible politicians didn't just point out and praise constructive behavior, but it would be nice if they also modeled it themselves. Yeah. And I think that's a reasonable expectation for those of us who voted them into office and you know, gave them the um, the role that that's always important, but especially important in times like this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, I you mentioned some things too about you know politicians acting you know, irresponsibly. They're they're obviously there are some that are acting responsibly, but but it seems like the ones that are acting irresponsibly are getting um, a lot of attention. And, you know, I, I sort of feel vulnerable at this point, honestly, because, you know, we're in a time of crisis and uh, this is also an election year. You know, and so I'm worried about things like voter suppression. Um, even before the uh, coronavirus hit us, um, I believe South Carolina was one of the states that just decided to cancel their presidential primaries, uh, like in Nevada and uh, Arizona, I think, and Kansas. 
they all the Republican Party. The, Repu- the Republican I'm sorry, the Republican Party. Party yes, did, yeah. exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that's not unheard of. That has happened in the past, but it uh, mm-hmm. that's that's one sign of the times. And then we get into this coronavirus uh, and, and you know sheltering in place and. Uh, already, you know, I live in Missouri here. We have some municipal elections uh, set up for, I believe it was uh, April 7th. Those are being postponed at this point. And I sort of uh, wonder how far this is going to go, uh, especially when you, you add into the mix, as you mentioned before, fear-mongering, blame, racism, xenophobia, things like that. So um, can you comment on that? How, it, it, am, I, am I wrong to feel vulnerable at this point, or is that, uh, is that appropriate? No, I think we should all feel vulnerable. But one one point here: the the decision not to have a presidential primary uh, was made by the Republican Party well before the coronavirus was even known about, and that was a purely political decision. Um, the Democrats have done it also. In fact, they did it the last time in the second term of uh, Barack Obama. So, what 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 it really is. What we're seeing is that these two dominant parties, um, once they get incumbents in office, not just the president, this is true with senators and congressmen and state legislators and others, uh, they throw all their weight behind that incumbent. Uh, They want those incumbents to stay in office and to continue almost in spite of anything, even when they're caught doing things that are corrupt, even when they're caught doing things illegal. The parties look the other way and... um, support them to run again and get reelected. So what's happened with the presidential elections in both parties, and I don't know why this doesn't just outrage all of us, is that if we vote for a Republican or Democratic president at the end of four terms, the two parties decide that that's it. Um, you mm-hmm. didn't vote for them for four, for four years. You didn't know it at the time, but you voted for them to be president for eight years. Mm-hmm. There's no no chance for you to reconsider whether you want to elect that person again for a second term because there's no primary. And if you're a partisan, which unfortunately a fairly large percentage of our population still is, uh, you're going to vote for the R or the D, um, you know, no matter what. So the primaries are important because it gives you a chance to decide which D or which R you're going to support. And that's being taken away from from all of us, by the two parties. But the vulnerability that's being increased, and I think you're right to feel it, under these conditions is that we have something called human fear. And fear, um, you know, there's a, a physiological part of it in terms of what it does to our rationality and our, our thinking processes, but it makes us more susceptible to uh, propaganda uh, techniques that we might not otherwise fall for. Um, it has shown us historically in other countries at other times that um, autocrats can sometimes come to power and have incredible power because of their ability to convince the masses that who are afraid or threatened that they and they alone can provide the security or the protection that people need. Mm-hmm. Um, you've heard of, and I, we hear this term now, by the way, You've heard in the past the the idea of a wartime um, president or wartime prime minister. Wartime implying that um, this is a condition under which we cannot change leadership. We have to stay with the same person who is there to protect us and to ensure success and not failure. So, yeah, there there are lots of things that can happen under these conditions that would be less likely to happen uh, under, quote-unquote, more normal times. You mentioned voter suppression. Um, you know, we have a number of states that allow people to vote from home. Um, if the virus is still virulent uh, by December, I mean by November, um, we could see a lot of people unable or unwilling to vote in states where they have to physically go to a poll. Right. Um, they, you know, that, that's really, that, that flies in the face of everything we say we stand for, that if you're a voter in one state, you have full access to the democratic pro- process. But if you happen to be in a state that doesn't provide that option, it makes it extremely difficult, even dangerous, for you to exercise the right to vote. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
Yeah, we. I think we all have to be very, very careful under these conditions. Um, hopefully our institutions, um, our traditions as a democracy, and just our sort of good sense as Americans will keep us from being susceptible to this. But it's happened in other countries that were extremely well-educated and that also had a, a history of uh, a republic or democratic process. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about um, uh, voting at home because, you know, I it, it just it just spurred a memory in my mind here that uh, about three days ago I filled out the census online. And I thought, oh, my gosh, here this uh, envelope comes in from the government and it has a secret code on it. Or I wouldn't say secret, but it's a unique code. I enter this code into their online website and voila, you know, it knows who I am. It, it knows that, you know, that uh, I'm going to, you know, at least insofar as they're concerned, tell the truth, right? Uh, and, and fill out the census. Um, same thing with my bank. I trust my bank, my, my bank to keep track of my money when I'm online. So here we are, you know, we're still, you know, in 18th century sort of, you know, technology for voting on, you know, the, the, what's that, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. It just seems, it, it boggles my mind that, uh, that, that we're still... Uh, and you and I, before the show started, we talked about uh, about uh, going out and getting petition signatures. Same thing that has to be done face to face. It uh, cannot be done online, except um, notably, I believe New Jersey right now is making an exception in that area. So, um, yeah, this is uh, this is sort of a subtle way of of suppressing. I wouldn't say direct voter suppression, but it's certainly a um, a way of squashing out any sort of competition into this uh, democratic process. Yeah, on one hand, we encourage all Americans to vote. We even say it's a a civic and patriotic responsibility. And yet we make it incredibly cumbersome cumbersome to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, why do we pick one day? Why is it more more than one day? Why is it a weekday? And with all of the technology we have and all the other trusting relationships we utilize it for, some of which you just talked about, why isn't what is arguably the most important sacred one of all the one that we utilize that technology for? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say that there are motives here that that have nothing to do with, um, you know, tradition. I think there are motives in terms of wanting n- wanting not to make it particularly easy for certain demographics in our population to find it attractive and, and easy to vote. Mm-hmm. And um, you could draw your own conclusions as to who that benefits, but um, I can see no other no other rationale for it really. Yeah, yeah, people protecting their turf, right? So, so. Um, Getting back to this pandemic thing, I just sort of want to get your input on this. The the um, it will pass someday, you know, when the storm will subside. We don't know when or how or 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 by what means it's going to happen. But how, in your mind, would the ideal, ideally, how in your mind would politicians help put the pieces back together? You know, we we have to get the economy restarted. We have to get you know. Um, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the normal we had before, because everybody's going to be conscious of, of what we just went through. But how do politicians help get society, in your mind, at least the ideal politician, how would they put everything back together? Well, that's a great question. Um, part, of, part of the answer, I think, depends on how politicians, the responsible ones, um, behave during the crisis itself. You know, will they increase or decrease the public's trust in political and elective leadership. Um, it's, it's not a particularly high level now. It wasn't a high level before we went into this crisis. And how they handle the crisis, how they respond, what kind of leadership they provide, what kind of modeling they do themselves will play a real role in what kind of credibility they have when it comes time to lead us out of it. Um, you know, when you think about the things right now that we're being told by the experts, not by the politicians always, but by the experts that we need to be doing, um, social distancing, definitely, 
under certain conditions, quarantining, yes. And definitely we need to do more with testing mm-hmm. uh, in order to understand the problem, you know, to, to, to understand the facts that, that lie before us and what options we have. At some point, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, we're also going to be uh, looking at to, to leadership in terms of treatments and vaccines. And, you know, Dan, a lot of people haven't thought about this yet, but we already have questions about the distribution of testing, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be ample evidence that certain Americans have access to tests more readily and results more quickly than so-called the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's pretty bad, and that that creates all kinds of anxiety and, and mistrust and distrust of our government and of the people who are in leadership roles in it. But when we get to treatments, when we get to the point where we start to have things that can really make a difference, obviously, in terms of people surviving or not surviving, and there aren't enough of those treatments, who gets them first? Mm. Who gets them and who doesn't get them? Right. That'll, that'll, that'll be very important in terms of how we view our leadership. And then just take that to the next step. Let's say we have a proven, perfected vaccine. How quickly can that vaccine be made available to 350 million people in this country, but billions of people worldwide? Because as we have learned, you have to care about everybody's health if you care about your own. Not just in your community, not just in your state, not just in your nation, but on the planet itself. So how long will it take for those vaccines to roll out and who will get first crack at those vaccines? Who will get to use them most? Mm-hmm. Again, that's that's going to play a large role in how we view government and how we view our elected leaders. And especially if we feel they haven't been fair, they haven't been equitable, they haven't been honest and truthful and transparent, when it comes time for them to then lead us out of this in terms of our new economy, excuse me, our new, a new economy, mm-hmm. are we likely to turn to those same people uh, for direction or guidance? So so what I think it's really important to look ahead to how we're going to rebuild this economy, um, how we're going to get people back to work. But we have many, many steps yet between now and then. Yeah. And how we work with one another as Americans, but also how we... Uh, believe our leaders have performed will be critical in terms of the trust in government to pull us out of this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, when it comes time to do that, uh, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that we will have a bold, creative approach to not just replicating what existed before the virus hit us, but to take the lessons we've learned, hopefully, about what's important, what works, what doesn't, where our vulnerabilities were that perhaps we didn't realize before. You know, there's mm-hmm. an old analogy that when the tide goes out, that's when you find out who's wearing a bathing suit and who isn't. There, there are a whole lot of bathing suits missing mm-hmm. in our healthcare system, um, in our communication system, in our logistics system. Uh, in our communications, how well our federal government works with our states and vice versa. There are a lot of things that need to be addressed. And I would hate for us to to go back to trying to replicate the same systems that served us so poorly under this crisis. Yeah. So you know, for, I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. For example, we have been talking for decades in this country about the need to address our crumbling and aging infrastructure. Um, We have to get after that. And one of the reasons we haven't is we were concerned about the cost. Well, as anybody's been paying attention to Congress lately, we are spending trillions of dollars because we have to. Right. And there are other things that we should have done before that we could have afforded if it had been a priority, like we're now saying this is, and this obviously is a priority. 
but we can we can address the infrastructure but when we do let's let's think about a 21st century infrastructure let's think about an infrastructure that takes us rapidly toward a decarbonized economy and society this is a terrible crisis but we have another one that's looming that hasn't gone away and that's called climate change mm-hmm. and so let's rebuild our infrastructure but let's take this opportunity to do it in creative ways and it'll create millions of jobs in the process let's also do something about our healthcare system a lot of people were saying it wasn't working for large numbers of Americans long before the corona crisis but it's very obvious now that it is not and it's not resilient it has no built-in redundancy and if anything unexpected happens we we see what what a terrible uh, set of circumstances that creates for us so let's let's create a a healthcare system that provides what most people now believe is the case that that access to quality health care is a right, not a privilege. Mm-hmm. So let's create that kind of health care system, but also let's create it so that when the next pandemic comes, and there will be one, part of this is related to climate change, um, that we're ready for it. We should never be surprised again. We shouldn't have been surprised this time. Right. I mean, we have had, we've had ample warnings, as you and your listeners know, I'm sure, for decades, you know, um, We've yeah. had SARS and, and you know, we've had um, MERS and we've had, you know, the bird flu and we've had H1N1. We've had epidemic after epidemic and people kept saying, wow, we got lucky on this one. We got lucky on that one. But one of these days, something is going to come along that's highly contagious and that's deadly. Yeah. Well, we've got one of those two things. It is highly contagious. It could be a lot deadlier than it is. I mean, think about it. What if this was Ebola, right? But also, but also contagious. So, in a way, we're 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 getting a break. I mean, we could lose thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives. But it could be a lot worse. So, it, well, I guess my point is, and I'll, I'll stop. Is let's rebuild our economy, but let's rebuild it in a way that represents what we've learned from this terrible set of circumstances. And let's rebuild it in a way that we can lead the world, the United States can lead the world, not only in vanquishing this virus, but in showing how you can rebound from it and have an even better, more enlightened society and economy. Well, and and to your point, too, I was just reading a report earlier today uh, by a news agency. I think it was, I don't remember who it was anymore, but they cited a 2003 report by the the Government Accountability Office that noted, and I quote, uh, and this is 2003, by the way, I quote, few hospitals reported having the equipment and supplies needed to handle a large-scale infectious disease outbreak Half the hospitals we surveyed had, for every 100 staff beds, fewer than six ventilators, three or fewer personal protective equipment suits, and fewer than four isolation beds. And this is way back in 2003, and there have been uh, a half a dozen reports that that was cited in this particular report I was reading that there were warnings throughout. Now, 2003, of course, is, is George W. Bush, so we'll spread the blame here. It's, it also happened underneath the Obama administration. These reports that are that are um, that have been um, uh, requested by government agencies in Congress, and um, they sort of fall on deaf ears. And, we, and you talked about the infrastructure as well. We see the same thing happening. So, uh, in terms of like you know our infrastructure falling apart, we're getting all these reports that bridges are going to crumble soon, and, and yet we're not getting the money for these uh, for these uh, proactive. Um, um, in, uh, proactive actions that can you know, ameliorate some of these uh, disasters we're seeing. So I guess it, it comes down to a, a central question here is how can we remain vigilant, you know, in preparation for the next pandemic or in preparation for the next, you know, big disaster? Um, you know, we've got, you know, medical stockpiles, bio research, health education, all these things have been getting cut 
over the last few years. And um, how do we do this? How do we remain vigilant? Do, do we, it, it is, it, does it take a politician to, you know, a single politician or maybe a small group of politicians to stand up and say, look, everybody, we're going the wrong direction? Um, I just, you know, in, in, the, in a current deadlocked Congress that I see right now, I don't really see that happening. Well, you know, Dan, I, I was just giving you a couple of examples of systems that are outdated that we need to reimagine uh, and not to recreate them as they were, but create them as they can be and need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, at, right at the top of that list is our political system. It is failing us, and it has been failing us in so many ways. I mean, when you look at the United States... Uh, comparative rankings with other nations, um, we have been going further and further down the scale. Um, And especially on all the things that matter, longevity, um, maternal mortality, um, educational outcomes for our children, um, the quality of our air and water. I mean, you can run down the things that most people would agree are really important to our quality of life, that we have been slipping further and further behind. We used to be a gold medal nation. If you think of the Olympics, you know, think of the medal stand, gold medal, silver, and bronze. Mm-hmm. The United States, in so many areas, was the gold medal, and people wanted to emulate us. They, they wanted to emulate our form of government, which is why democracy spread so rapidly over those decades. Not so much anymore. Autocracies are, are gaining ground because they look at us and they see all the dysfunctionality that we have in this, in this system. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've got to have a different approach to politics. And, of course, you know, this is the alliance after dark, and you know what we believe some of those are. But we have to put a, a new emphasis on public service, not on career politicians. Um, we have to have transparency. Uh, we have to get people elected to office who are not um, – beholden to uh, party bosses, party whips, or even a particular ideology. We need people who are ethical problem solvers, who bring people together in this country, don't divide them for the purposes of getting reelected. There are so many things that need to change, and most Americans have a pretty good idea of what those ideals should look like. But until we actually have voting opportunities, to elect those kinds of people who behave that way once in office. Many of the things that you and I are talking about tonight will either not get addressed or will not be adequately addressed. And, th- and that's the grim reality. Uh, you know, I used to tell people not that, not that long ago uh, when I would talk to them about the need for reforming our political system, they'd say, well, you know, I'm really not interested in politics. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, look, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And you can ignore it, you can pretend it doesn't matter, but it is going to determine virtually every part of your life, your child's life, your family's life, your community's life. So you can go along blithely thinking that you don't want to get involved and you don't want to pay attention to and you don't want to uh, do things to improve our political system. But stop complaining if that's the way you're going to be because that means that you're really a fatalist. You're just going to let the system continue Right. perform the way it does now. So we, we've got we've got to address that. I mean, I can think of a few simple things right off the head. You talk about um, avoiding this or attempting to avoid the same kind of reaction, lack of reaction we've had this time around. I mean, we should have a cabinet-level um, position in the federal government uh, who is sort of the, this wouldn't be the title, but the czar of pandemics. Mm. And that person should have... a a group of advisors that should include the best scientists and epidemiologists in the nation, maybe in some from other nations too in the world. And we should not only be constantly looking at what kind of healthcare system we have to have, what kind of communication system we have to have, what kinds of equipment our healthcare workers will need, but all of that should be laid out in a plan for our next pandemic. And we ought to also ought to have a plan for rebuilding after the pandemic, because no matter how we respond, how well we respond to a pandemic, 
there will be economic after aftershocks. There will be economic damage done for some period of time, yeah. recession and or depression. So we should have a plan for that. We have had no planning. Right. And then we got a late start. We, you know, we pretended it wasn't as bad as it is. We pretended it was going to go away. Uh, we can never allow that to happen again. The federal government has that responsibility. States have the role in it, but the federal government has that responsibility. We're one nation. We can't deal with it, you know, 50 different entities doing it differently. And um, our elected leaders have their responsibility also. So we, we've got to change the political system as well as uh, attack these problems in a much different way. So when you say changing the political system, um, I'm just going to plug last week's podcast here because we talked to Lee Drutman, uh, who wrote this book called uh, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, uh, the case for yeah, multi-party democracy. Yeah, I listened to it. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, he's a, he's a very talented individual. And uh, I actually uh, believe very strongly in that. If we have a multi-party democracy, that... Uh, that would go a long ways, I think, because this duopoly is 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 becoming so much of a zero sum game that everybody everybody loses in a situation like that. So, is that one way that we could um, you know sort of put together our political system that would fix things? I think so. I think um, competition of ideas is really important. Uh, much of the competition we have between the two parties has nothing to do with ideas or solutions. It has to do with who's going to stay in power, who's going to get reelected. Um, and both of them are uh, vastly influenced by special interests. Mm -hmm. And in almost every case, special interests um, are there, almost by definition, to protect the status quo, because the status quo is what has allowed them to be elevated to the status of a special, a special interest. Mm -hmm. So both parties are beholden to the same special interests. Uh, you, you mentioned these reports, for example, a few minutes ago about mm -hmm. the inadequacy of our hospitals in terms of equipment, um, you know, protective uh, equipment for our healthcare workers, ventilate, ventilators, beds, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, you know, our, our healthcare system is driven uh, by a profit system. Mm -hmm. And hospitals have no incentive to have beds uh, that have no one in them. Or, or have uh, additional emergency facilities that are not being utilized, right. i.e. creating revenue. Mm -hmm. So there's no incentive to have a surplus, to have additional capacity. And they've learned over the years very well how to uh, calculate their peak uh, periods of time, you know, during the flu season, et cetera, and to have just enough kind of real-time demand, just enough beds, ventilators, and healthcare workers, and medicines, and tests to accommodate those peak periods, and not to go beyond that. So when you have a new peak period, a new crisis, we're left in the situation we're left now. The two parties both have um, allowed that to continue because of the special interests that drive that, that mm -hmm. healthcare system. And you can say the same thing about a myriad of of uh, problems. So what we need are other parties with other ideas and hopefully other loyalties other than to that same group of special interests that have funded and in many ways created the two-party duopoly that we're now um, saddled with. Yeah. 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 When you talk about special interests, you're talking mainly about lobbyists with dollars. Is that sort of where we're yes. dealing with? Big, okay. Big dollars. Yeah. And, and as long as politicians have to have big dollars in order to stay in office and be reelected, um, those interests will be at the top of their list. Because if you want, I mean, I've said this so many times that it's always amazed me that some people get kind of an aha look when I say it. But if you want to be a, a career politician, if you want to make a career out of it, by definition, you have to get reelected. You can't have a career unless you keep getting reelected. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the statistics in this nation, the way it's set up now, over 95% of the time, the candidate who has the most money for their, for their campaign wins the election. Yeah. So when people say money matters in politics, it does. Yeah. And oftentimes, again, over 90% of the time, the one with the most money is the incumbent. 
So the incumbents usually win. They usually have the most money, therefore they win. The vested interests give them that money, and the vested interests know that that's an investment in that in that office and that person in terms of the things that they want to see passed that benefit them and or the things they want to see stopped that benefit them. Mm-hmm. And those are the um, those are the levers that are at work and the gears that are grinding. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, and I mentioned this before in previous podcasts, that it, it always um, amazes me when you watch the news or you watch, you know, the, the you know, Meet the Press or uh, Face the Nation or something like that. And they, they talk about the politicians that are, uh, that are the incumbents or the politicians that are new. And very quickly, the, 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 uh, the conversation turns to who's raising more money. And they look at the dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it's... It doesn't necessarily follow. I mean, like, like Jesse Ventura could be one uh, example, uh, a counterexample to that. But for the most part, it's there is a high correlation between the dollars that a politician raises and whether or not he or she actually wins that election. And that's, uh, it, 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 I think, like you say, it is an aha moment because you say, wait a minute, how could that happen? How could that how could we predict the results of this election based on money? And and the answer to that question, of course, is that there's a high correlation there that that it just normally turns out that way. Well, you know, we we uh, buy products based upon how often we see them advertised, how prominent the brand is, uh, what propaganda techniques are utilized to make us think that's the best brand. Either um, you know the bandwagon approach or glittering mm-hmm. generalities, or or lots of techniques that are used. And they're used in very sophisticated ways. And if you have the money to continually bombard people with that product, or in this case, with that candidate, uh, you dramatically increase the odds that you're going to buy it. And buying it means uh, electing it in this case. Yeah. And the thing is, too, with uh, with social media these days, it doesn't take that much to buy in. And you can also sneak underneath the radar in many ways in the sense that you can sneak stuff into social media that you couldn't put into uh, into uh, regular commercial advertisement. And what I'm getting at there is, you know, propaganda from our you know our enemies who'd like to see us uh, fail. Kind of a code word for Russia there, but you know, and I see it to these days. I've heard more than one person talk about uh, this coronavirus was manufactured in a lab somewhere for some nefarious purpose, and. I start pushing back on that and saying, okay, I think maybe you're seeing some propaganda from a Russian troll or something like that, because uh, on the surface, it doesn't make any sense. But underneath the surface, it makes sense that if you're trying to disrupt the uh, political stability in this country, if you're trying to undermine confidence in government, uh, those are exactly the types of stories that you would push on social media. Well, you're right. And, you know, you don't need aircraft carriers and missiles anymore to defend to defeat a powerful nation like ours. Um, what you need is um, propaganda techniques. Um, and you're right, social media now has given them a whole new set of weapons. They've become very sophisticated. They really don't give a damn, frankly, who wins the election. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want to divide us and disrupt us. They yeah. want us to be, um, you know, they want us to distrust our government. They want us to distrust in, uh, one another. Uh, they would like it if we hated one another, and mm-hmm. they've had some success with that. Feared one another. They've had some success with that. And that's how you, that's how you defeat uh, a country like ours now. And somehow, and maybe this will be one of the changes that will come from this, maybe people will start to become smarter consumers of information. Um, maybe they'll realize that they almost have a patriotic duty to stop accepting everything they hear, especially if it already supports or confirms the biases they presently hold. Um, you know, we've, we've been told it's now patriotic to stay at home and to have social distancing, and a lot of Americans are beginning to add that into the definition of what mm-hmm. it is to be a good citizen and a good American. Maybe we can get people to start broadening it in other ways, too, in terms of how they... Uh, consume information, what they believe, uh, whether they check things out or not. Yeah. Um, I would hope, I would hope that would come out of this. I would hope so. It's, uh, I think it also, um, you have to stop somehow or another the politicians from leveraging on that as well. 
um, and, you know, without using his name, you know who I'm talking about there, because um, they can sort of feed into that and keep and stoke the flames, and um, it really does destabilize things, and yet some people will benefit from it, of course. People that get elected benefit from it, but um, in this type of uh, environment, we all lose, ultimately. So in speaking of that, I just sort of uh, pick on a specific example of this, um, science. Okay. Scientists have been given a bad name. And, and what's interesting here is that, um, well, let me ask, start off with this question here, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. But do you think the pandemic will, will change people's perspectives on science? Because, you know, certain politicians obviously have been getting a lot of mileage out of bashing scientists and calling them elitists and deep state, uh, deep state conspiracy theorists, or they're part of the deep state whose purpose is to bring down America. And I've heard a lot of it lately. You know, we talked about, you know, uh, the Chinese government inventing this, this coronavirus. Uh, and actually, I, I did some research and found out that this thing we call climate change was actually started off as global warming, and it kind of got watered down the climate change. So it's all you know, kind of crazy stuff to me. And so what I find ironic right now is that now that we are in the throes of this coronavirus, uh, what do these politicians do? They turn to the scientists and say, you know, find us a cure for this thing. Get us a cure. So it it's it's ironic. So do you think that this pandemic, uh, among other things, will perhaps change people's perspectives on science? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? You know, when your life is at, at stake and the life of your loved ones, your family, your neighbors, um, you really don't want to just hear people's opinions. You'd like to hear somebody who is an expert, and it'd be nice if that expert also gave you some facts, you know, some research, some data, some examples of what has worked and what hasn't worked, or at least the research that's underway now to try to find perhaps a new answer to a new problem. Um, you would think that people who really care deeply about something in this case, their lives, would want factual, empirical data and would want it from people with experience and expertise in that area. And that's not the deep state. Uh, That's not an elite. That's someone who actually has information and expertise that's useful to you. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would think so. You know, some of this, you know, my background, but some of this comes into how well we educate our, our population. You know, our education system is also one of those areas we need to do some major reforming mm-hmm. in. And, 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 you know, an educated population, and, you know, many of the founding fathers even said some pretty eloquent things about this, that democracy doesn't really work at the rate, at the level it needs to, unless you have a discerning, educated uh, citizenry. And um, we have a lot of people now that just blindly go along with, Whatever they hear that, um, you know, they've been told by um, their family or their community or uh, some uh, person of, uh, in, in a elated or elevated role, they should believe. And they don't really um, have any analytical tools of their own to decide what it is they're going to accept or not accept. And some of that falls back on our education system that we haven't given our students, those kind of analytical tools. And um, yeah. so, you know, we, we expect a lot of our citizens and we don't prepare them as well as we should. Yeah, good. That's good. Good analytical thinking is, is what's really required uh, these days. It's it's um, with technology these days, it's it's just becoming uh, very easy to isolate yourself. It's It's ironic in a sense that we live among all this technology that's that's enhancing our lives and, and bringing a lot of information to us. But uh, even in this time of information, we are finding ourselves um, information deserts. We're, we're just tuning into one or two things, or I should really just say we're just tuning into one thing and uh, using that as an echo chamber and hearing the same thing over and over again and, and starting to repeat it as fact. And uh, it's ironic in a sense that, you know, we have a, you know, a fairly advanced society, and here we are. You know, education is an issue. Um, one final question I want to ask you is, uh, 
and it's kind of an open-ended question. It may not be a fair question for me to ask, but what sort of normal do you think we will get back to when this coronavirus thing, the storm blows over? And, and bear in mind, it may take a year and a half or two years for this thing to blow over before you know this so-called cure will be developed and we won't have to worry about it anymore. But what sort of normal do you see? It's very hard to see it, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. so much depends on what else lies ahead of us um, in terms of what what new challenges and and or new sacrifices we're all going to have to make. Um, the greater the sacrifices, probably the greater the changes in behavior mm-hmm. uh, beyond this. Hopefully some of them can be very positive. I mean, I, I would hope that maybe we would see less partisanship um, in the new normal. Uh, we'd see, as we just mentioned, maybe smarter consumers of information, people who would be more discerning in terms of what they accept or don't accept as fact without checking it out. Um, I think maybe we also might see um, a higher priority put on family and relationships. Um, you know, all this um, sequestering is, mm-hmm. is putting people together with, with time that they've never had with one another. And while that might have its stresses at times, it's also got a lot of pluses. People mm-hmm. are starting to say, you know, maybe my stock portfolio has gone down, but, you know, that really isn't all that important in the long run. What's really important is my health, my life, my family, my friends, the relationships I have. Uh, and there are so many examples, and this is one of the things I hope the media continues to do, is of a compassion around the country, people reaching out to one another and doing some creative, marvelous things to support one another. Wouldn't it be nice if that became a part of the new normal. And, um, you yeah. know, maybe we'll see, um, maybe we'll see all of us kind of rethinking how important materialism really is. Maybe we've been on a mad dash to nowhere. And this, mm-hmm. uh, this virus might make us all rethink some things, including even our, um, our uh, perception of capitalism. Uh, maybe it's time to rethink it. You know, how, how do we harness the virtues, the virtues of capitalism, you know, competition, incentives, innovation, but also do it in a way that's more humane, has has um, more equal access to essential services like healthcare and quality education, livable wages, clean environment, safe communities, all the things that we know in our gut are really important, that really matter, mm-hmm. um, that somehow we just are not are not creating and not providing enough of. Wouldn't it be nice if that was part of the new normal? Yeah, I like that uh, because you know I've 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 had this uh, from several people now that um, the last few weeks driving around, uh, and this is just driving around St. Louis here, going to work and back, and now of course I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm homebound for the foreseeable future, but. Up to this point, um, there are a lot of people walking around. There's a lot of people on the street. They're walking it more than usual. It, it's it's not just the fact mm-hmm. that the weather's getting better. It's just that a lot of people are spending time with each other. There's this uh, interesting article written by a guy named Art Kleiner, who it appears in the uh, um, Medium uh, magazine. It's an online magazine, but the title of it is "Are We Ready for the New Culture of Empathy?" And, and it's a fairly mm-hmm. long article, but in the article he he proposes this idea. He says, you know, this this pandemic and economic crisis uh, it may challenge the way people think about compassion and human value. And uh, it's a fairly hopeful article that he wrote. But uh, he ends by saying, you know, it's it's we hope that the uh, human uh, empathy becomes a part of the equation for this new normal, whatever emerges on the other side of this pandemic. Well, I. I, I I sure hope that's the case, Dan. You know, I can't remember the exact quote now, but I remember years ago someone said at every crossroads in terms of change, uh, for every reformer, for every um, visionary, idealist, there are is an army that is supporting the status quo. Yeah. So there, all the people who have profited who have benefited from the status quo are going to continue to be there to say what we did before was fine. It just needs a little tweaking, 
It just needs this. It just needs that. And oh, by the way, here are the people we need to blame for it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't the status quo's fault. It was this or that. And let's continue to do what we've been doing. So it takes a, it takes a real movement to uh, change course, to, to do the kinds of things that uh, you were describing in that article. Yeah. If this doesn't do it, (laughs) I don't know what will. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And one, one interesting he brings out in your article, too, I think it was this article. I've read so many articles today. But um, if, there is a, if there is a quick response or a quick cure for this pandemic and we just get a shot and we're done, we're back to normal again, right, to whatever our old normal was, uh, that would kind of uh, defeat the purpose of this experience. You know, this experience, um, I mean, it, it's, it's a horrific experience for some people recognize that. But it could be a changing experience if it is not an easy solution, if it is something that really requires us to be more introspective and try to change our ways. Well, I heard one, I heard someone, I heard someone say one time, no crisis should be squandered. Hmm. Crises um, do provide opportunities for change that only come, only come along under those conditions. Um, You pay a terrible price, but you're going to pay that price no matter what. Yeah. So if you're paying the price, why not get a benefit from it and see it as an opportunity to, to learn and do things differently? Well said. Well said. Well, I think that's it for this evening, Jim. Uh, thank you again for stopping by, and it's nice to chat with you. We should do this every few months. Well, I'd be more than happy to do that, Dan. You're, you're a, a tremendous asset and resource for this movement, this new party called the Alliance Party. Um, I'm happy to be a part of it. lots of Americans— well, we're glad to have you be more than just a part of it. And, and these discussions, this is what we're all about, is, you know, the competition of ideas. We need to be listening to one another. We need to be talking to one another. We need to be dreaming together about how to make things better. And uh, I think you just said a, a new normal of compassion would be, would be nice for all of us. You're very welcome. Exactly. Well, thanks again, Jim. Uh, We've been talking with Jim Rex, the Alliance Party National Chairperson. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning into the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.